when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the surprise by-election result in Richmond Park and UKIP's new leader and its prospects of the party renewing itself. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, chief political correspondent Jim Picard, plus political commentator Miranda Green and Marcus Roberts from YouGov. Thank you all for joining. So it's been by-election season in Britain again, and in the leafy London suburb of Richmond Park, there's been a surprising victory by the Liberal Democrats. In a by-election that was notionally meant to be about Heathrow, but actually became about Brexit, the incumbent maverick Tory, Zach Goldsmith, was rejected by the electorate and replaced by Remainer, Sarah Olney. Everyone is crowing this is a great big moment for British politics. The 48% are fighting back. But what actual effect will it have on Article 50 or even Heathrow? And what does it tell us about the state of the Liberal Democrats? So, George Parker, when we looked at the race, I think everyone thought it was going to be pretty close, but we thought that was just about going to Pippet. He had a big personal standing. He was pretty well known in the constituency, but he lost quite considerably. How did the Liberal Democrats do it? Well, they did it by relentless by-election campaigning. I lived down in the constituency and there were some days when I was getting two leaflets through the doors, uh, multiple knocks on the doors. It was it was the classic Lib Dem by-election operation. And you're right, a couple of weeks ago, I think we would have said that the Lib Dems weren't making enough headway to win that seat. Zach Goldsmith managed to keep the focus on the Heathrow expansion issue, which was what he was campaigning on. And the Liberal Democrats were struggling to turn it on to Brexit, which is what they really wanted to talk about. But in the last two weeks, I got the sense that people were starting to clock the fact that Zach Goldsmith had campaigned for a Brexit vote. The Lib Dems were quite successful in focusing that on him. And in the last week or so, people were starting to pick up the phone to me and saying, we're on for a surprise here in Richmond. So it's a it's a very interesting result and, and rather unexpected, I think. And I think the key thing here is this Liberal Democrat by-election machine, which was very formidable in the late 90s and early noughties and then sort of withered away after they lost Chris Renard, who um, was involved in various mm. um, Westminster scandals, and he was the big driver behind that. Based on this result and the strong showing in the Whitney by-election mm. October, it looks as if they've got that machine going again. Yeah, they have, and it's not just a mechanical thing. It's the fact that the party is galvanised and emotional engaged in the fight. I think the Brexit vote, strangely enough, the defeat gave the Lib Dems a new sense of purpose. And it wasn't just about Europe, which obviously gives them a defining feature, but the fact, and you see this on all the leaflets and posters around Richmond Park, it's about openness and tolerance. And I think it's mobilised, I don't know what Miranda thinks about this, but a lot of people from all over the country were were travelling to that constituency to make a stand against what they saw as a new, ugly and divisive tone in British politics. Yes, so Miranda Green, in a past life, you were a Liberal Democrat spinner, so I'm sure you can explain to us why this is the beginning of a big (laughs) revival. Tim Farron's going to be Prime Minister, Vince Cable's (laughs) going to be Chancellor, but seriously, the party's only gone from eight 
to nine MPs here. It's a very big result. No one would disagree with that. But it's not going to have a big effect in the House of Commons and it's not actually going to reshape the political debate, or is it? No, it's not. I mean, in percentage terms, because they only have eight MPs yesterday, it's quite a big jump from eight <laughs> to nine. I think it's 12 point something jump in the parliamentary and presence of the And female as well. And, and a woman, yes. Yeah, yeah. So they're first woman on the green benches since the 2015 general election, which is a good thing, of course. I think it's fair to argue that it's... A, I mean, by-elections are interesting if they're significant ones, because of what they crystallise. Not that the moment itself necessarily changes anything, but they bring together some strands that are un, you know, underlying currents in politics and, and show what's going on. I agree with what George has said about a general feeling that a quite narrow Brexit referendum victory for leave doesn't mean a blank cheque for the government to kind of push the whole country over a hard Brexit cliff. And there was a sort of moment, it felt like a moment for people to assert that argument via a vote for the Lib Dem candidate. And what was significant, I think, in that constituency, I mean, if you look at the Labour vote there, they garnered fewer votes, they lost their deposit yesterday, and they garnered fewer votes than they have members in the constituency. So that shows you a lot of Labour voters switching to the Lib Dems. The Green Party didn't put up a candidate. The Women's Equality Party also endorsed the female Lib Dem candidate. So what you actually have at work is potentially something that could worry the Conservatives. I think one of the most significant things about this is what it does to Theresa May's calculations about holding a general election next year or not. Because there are around, apparently around 80 similar seats to Richmond in terms of the demographics, this kind of very hyper-educated, prosperous, suburban, cosmopolitan sort of population. And if you manage to pick off a few more of those seats with a similar sort of swing, I mean, a very dramatic swing, which you couldn't replicate universally in a general election, but if you could get that kind of 19, 20% swing, which they've now achieved in Whitney and in Richmond, in some of these other seats, you could start to pick off the Tory majority. And it makes it quite risky for Theresa May to go for an early election. So I think that's the background factor of national significance. Mm. I think Miranda has a very good point there, George, that, as I said, the Richmond Park CLP had 1,600 members, according to one of their own tweets, and the Labour candidate, Christian Walmar, who's pretty well known himself, mm. only got 1,515 votes, I believe. So, you know, one could say it's almost as if there's people in the Labour Party who aren't really Labour people, but... Labour has created the space for this Lib Dem revival to happen. There's no way about that. I think if Labour had a much stronger position, whether it was Brexit or not Brexit, they would be able to go somewhere. At the moment, there's still really nowhere, and this gives the space for this to happen. Yeah, I think they are now faced with a really awkward squeeze, aren't they? Because on the one hand, they're facing pressure in the north from UKIP, who have an mm. ambiguous anti-European and anti-immigration message. Whereas the Labour Party, as you say, they've got no clear definition on where they are on the European debate. They seem to be opposed to the single market, or at least Jeremy Corbyn seems to be, but pro-immigration, untrammeled immigration. <laughs> it's the wrong way round. So it's, 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 it's basically it? identified the, um, the, the issue of Europe and actually is against the bit that people like, which is the single market, and is opposed to the thing that or is in favour of mass immigration. So they are in a very serious difficulty. And I think you'll see, as Miranda was alluding to there, in seats across the south, a lot of tactical voting, Labour mm. votes going across the Liberal Democrats, and that obviously increased the pressure on the Tories. And in the North, no viable way of stopping the UKIP advance. So they're in serious trouble. And there's been quite a lot of commentary hours after this Richmond by-election of the fact that this, you know, we're focusing on the Tories and the Lib Dems. It's a really serious moment for Labour. Absolutely. Let's just talk about Zach very briefly, Miranda, that, mm. you know, he's had a 
interesting political career. When he entered into frontline politics, he was seen as a bit of a golden boy for toy modernization. He, he was urbane and environmentalist, loved direct democracy, and was very much part of that thing. And then he campaigned for a lot of things in Parliament, for such as ability to recall MPs. And they didn't all come off. Actually, very few of them actually went anywhere. Then he ran for mayor of London this year, which was an absolute disaster of a campaign that was tinged with accusations that he was running a racist campaign against Sadiq Khan. And then he called this by-election, which he'd promised in the result of the government backing a third runway. But the British public don't really like by-elections. They always tend to punish whoever calls them, and they like punishing the government as well. Do you think this is it for Zach Goldsmith now, or might he have another punt at 2020? Well, there was always a slight feeling with Zach Goldsmith, not to knock his work as a constituency MP, but that, you know, because of his vast personal wealth, that politics was a little bit of a pastime. And this doesn't stop him having politics as a pastime. You know, he can use his money to intervene in various causes, both environmental causes, anti-free trade causes, which he tends to fund as well, although they're not very high profile. You raise his campaign in Parliament to try and give constituencies the right to recall their individual MP in between general elections, which he failed to get through. But one of the ironies of this by-election is he sort of gave his own constituency a right of recall, and they didn't agree with him on the issue of the day, which is Brexit. So he fell foul of his own sort of direct democracy ideal in that way. I think it's also sort of interesting to note that with that mayoral campaign he ran, which was very controversial because, of course, the man who won in the end, Sadiq Khan, uh, a London Labour Muslim, there were distinct tinges of racism about the campaign he ran and nothing could have gone down worse in his own constituency. So he's lost two elections this year, probably the latter yesterday, heavily affected by the way he conducted the former. Yeah, he'll carry on campaigning, as Miranda says, on environmental causes, particularly his opposition to Heathrow Airport. I would say, as a constituent of his until this week, he was a very good local MP. And I agree with Amanda that there was an element this was a pastime for him, but it was a pastime he took incredibly seriously. He knocked on doors. He was very present. He took on local campaigns. So I think some people will have voted to oust him with a sort of a, a slightly heavy heart. But having said that, the Liberal Democrats... This is a Liberal Democrat seat traditionally or has been in the past and they put all, put the squeeze on very successfully. And what about, as I said, going back to the whole Brexit debate, you know, is there any way, George, this could either squeeze Theresa May or could it make her think? Because at the moment people are saying all the pressures from the right of her party, people who want a hard Brexit. But this is actually going to say to her, wait a minute, you need to remember that there's a lot of 40, the 48% are out there as well. Yeah, I think this has been the worst week for the hard Brexit people, the clean Brexit people since the referendum. You've got signs that David Davis, quite a thoughtful Brexit minister, now talking about making budgetary contributions to the EU to maintain market access, talking about the fact we don't want to create labour shortages by having an over-restrictive immigration policy. And then at the end of the day, end of the week, Zach Goldsmith surrendering a 23,000 majority of Brexit for a Tory MP. So I think it's been a bad week for the hard Brexit people. And I think what will happen is you'll get moderate pro-EU Conservative MPs now going to Theresa May, and we've already seen Anna Soubry, the, Brexit, the former business minister, saying this today, that we can't go for a hard Brexit because if we do the yellow peril will be breathing down our neck in seats right across the south of England. Now whether that's true or not it will be used as a self-serving argument by moderate Tory MPs to say to Theresa May if you go down a clean break damaging to the economy route we will be vulnerable in seats right across the country. I think that's absolutely right and also just tactically day to day as the Brexit argument plays itself out 
it will be a presence in the back of the minds of those ministers that they will have people on their own back benches who are mm. now concerned. And I saw an analysis this morning that said that there are around 20 Conservative seats which might be vulnerable to a similar sort of anti-hard Brexit tactical squeeze on the Tory incumbent MP. That's quite a serious number, 20 MPs, when you only have a working majority now of 10 mm. after last night's result. And what about Heathrow as well, George? Because I said Zach called this by-election notion on the subject of Heathrow, despite the fact there wasn't a single pro-Heathrow candidate standing in that by-election. It's always struck me the numbers have always been there for Heathrow, and this was all just a bit of a sideshow. Well, you'd have to be fairly suicidal to stand in Richmond Park and be pro-expansion of Heathrow. <laughs> all the jobs, yeah. all the jobs for yeah. people there. But the trouble is the people in Richmond don't work at Heathrow. Mm. It's the, they, they, they suffer from the noise. The people who get the jobs are people who live further out into Hounslow who are in favour of the expansion of Heathrow. But no, I, mean, look, I think Heathrow is, is going ahead. And I think the voters of Richmond Park kind of clocked that as well. They, I think they realised that protesting about Heathrow was a bit like whistling in the wind. Protesting about Brexit, on the other hand, something which they're going to have to live with for many years to come, is something I think they felt there was still something they could do about it, which they, and they took the opportunity. Well, this raises a really interesting question about protest votes, I think, now. You know, in our new post-Brexit vote era, post-Brexit referendum era, has the protest vote become something rather different? I mean, for the Lib Dems, or was traditionally the third party until they ended up in the coalition with David Cameron for the last six years, five years, you know, to be a protest party for the Lib Dems used to mean garnering none of the above, which are the sort of people who now vote UKIP. It used to mean garnering, garnering people who are interested in really recherche topics like House of Lords reform and electoral reform, which don't really you know, get the pulses racing of the, the average voter. But they now have this opportunity to be a protest party again, but on a subject which motivates half the voters potentially. So it, it, it's sort of back to protest politics, but on an issue that actually really matters to the future of the country. And I was going to say, finally, Miranda, what do you see next for the Liberal Democrats on that? Is it it's really hunkering down on being the party anti-Brexit, trying to stop Brexit, or at the very least get the softest possible Brexit deal? Personally, I think soft is possible because that's the realistic option. But I also think in terms of kind of the electoral calculations, I think there'll be a lot of pressure now to get Labour and the Lib Dems to recognise there are seats which they can't win, so they should let the others have a This is the Progressive Alliance idea. Yeah, which can only work in certain circumstances. In a general election, it's very different because there's an argument you should actually offer the voters full palette of options. But, you know, certainly down in those seats that have always traditionally been Lib Dem, down in the southwest and in parts of the southeast, you know, they will be pushing really hard on this squeeze on the Labour votes, which could see them take seats back off the Tories again. So they'll be hugely encouraged by that sort of sign. You can't replicate this swing everywhere, but you can pick off a few key seats to start your recovery up from this terrible tally of eight in 2015. And George, very briefly, on the Progressive Alliance, do you think that has any traction at all, this idea that the Lib Dems, Greens and Labour should work together somehow to stop the Tories, essentially? Well, and it's a big cause of Miranda's former boss, uh, Paddy Ashdown. Whether it actually works in practice, I'm not sure. We hear about this kind of thing all the time. But when it comes down to general elections, especially, you've got local parties who exist to fight elections. So the idea of them standing aside for an opponent, I think, is unlikely. So I think it's one of the things... No, that but we... it's where you direct your resources. That it's is how true. you fight it. Yeah, you can do that. But in the end, we have this kind of talk about tactical voting for every election. I don't suspect it's going to be any greater in 2020 than it, is, uh, it was at 2015. <laughs> 
The Liberal Democrats were not the only party to experience a revival this week. UKIP selected its latest leader to replace Nigel Farage in the form of Paul Nuttall, a 40-year-old Liverpudlian who is hoping to take the party in a new, different direction. Instead of focusing on Eurosceptics in the home counties around London, Mr Nuttall has stated his aim is to replace the Labour Party and make UKIP the patriotic voice of working people. He will be gunning for those seats, particularly in the north, which used to be Labour heartlands, now represented by Remain MPs, but voted overwhelmingly for Brexit. Jim Picard, I feel like I've heard this a lot before, this idea that UKIP is going to become the real party of opposition and they're going to be able to wipe out Labour. But it didn't happen at the last general election and it's not happening in the opinion polls. So do you think Mr Nutter has much of a chance of doing what Nigel Farage couldn't? I think one way to look at this is that the UK Independence Party was set up for one reason alone, which was to obtain independence for the UK. It's in the and name. Therefore, now that we are getting that does that pose a massive existential problem for them? And I think the answer to that is that in recent years, as people know, they shifted their emphasis more towards immigration. And it was that kind of chemical combination of immigration and EU as a subject, which which was so explosive in recent years. And yet they didn't get uh, much success in 2015. They only got that one seat of Douglas Carswell, who had already been there as a Tory MP. So They are starting from a position which is not exactly great. They don't have much money. They don't have much organisation. They are a party that attracts mavericks. Many of these mavericks have fallen out before. They're likely to fall out again. So saying all that, there's still an interesting question of whether Nuttall, with the new leadership, can have this new focus. And I think when you look at Nigel Farage and you look at the brand, yes, he was able to relate to working class people who go into a pub and down pints of ale and smoke fags and sort of talk in a in a way that people connected with. But he did look and sound pretty Tory. There's a kind of smell about him of the former commodities trader and his barber with plenty of money, which would have turned off quite a few people up north. And maybe Paul Nuttall could turn that around, but I wouldn't take this for granted. So Marcus Roberts, I think the big question here is how much has changed in British politics in the last six months? Because in the general election campaign, UKIP did try to focus on some of those seats, you know, Great Yarmouth, Boston, Skegness, and didn't break through. And in they were held by Labour and um, Tory MPs, respectively. Um, Mr Nuttall has run for parliamentary seats before, not really done that well. He ran and won in his own neck of the woods near Bhutto. You know, do you think that the Brexit vote has changed us in a way? Because the country, you know, I was watching Question Time on Thursday, and it's just so split on the EU question. Everything is viewed through the lens of whether you're a Remain or a Lever. And I could see in those seats that if you've got a Remain Labour MP representing you, you're never going to vote for them, but you would vote for that Brexit UKIP chap. Ask yourself the question, strategically, who would you rather be right now? Would you rather be the Labour Party, led by Jeremy Corbyn, making an argument for unfettered, unlimited immigration? Or would you rather be UKIP, making an argument that Brexit should have happened yesterday when you consider your appeal to white working class voters in these marginal constituencies? That is the crucial advantage that Nuttall has going in. But James is quite right. It's not all roses for Paul Nuttall, because he also has to contend with the fact that unlike Nigel Farage, he will not attract the media's attention. 
He will not have this Trump factor, this ability to suck in media coverage and sail that wave um, to the maximum extent imaginable. And that will be a problem for him. So whilst he has big advantages in terms of a Labour Party that's completely disconnected from voters and a UKIP that has a very strong appeal on core issues, he does not have all of the advantages that Farage's UKIP had. I suppose this is all about a question of immigration and that topic, Jim, because the fact is UKIP's policy in the EU referendum was leave the EU to cut migration. They did posters. They went on about it over and over again. As Marcus just said, Jeremy Corbyn's policy is unlimited migration. Now, some in the Labour Party have been making the argument that actually we need to move away from that. People, Ed Bores has said it, Stephen mm-hmm. Kinnock has said it. You know, that's where this is going to be fought out, I suppose. And unless Labour gets a different policy on immigration, then they are going to be susceptible to UKIP just coming along and saying we're the only party who is going to decrease numbers. Yeah, and I think the way to think about UKIP is that they've straddled two demographics. They started off having loads of former Tory supporters who'd left the Conservative Party because they didn't think it was Eurosceptic enough. And then as they got more and more into the anti-immigration message, they started sweeping up loads of white working class former Labour voters. Now, I think we're seeing the former Tory voters starting to go back into the fold. They find Theresa May's position quite acceptable. A lot of her cabinet are stridently Eurosceptic and they like that. And so that's leaving the UKIP vote as being the former Labour voter. So it's kind of logical that Nuffle should go after them. But here's the big unknown. And we've had a lot of unknowns in recent years and we've made a lot of bad predictions. And this is all very difficult. But the prediction that people seem to be making when they say that UKIP could sweep the North in 2020 is that the big salient issues in four years' time are still going to be the EU and there's still going to be immigration. Now, yes, uh, the Lib Dems in Richmond Park, we saw yes, they were able to make the EU the salient issue, but it's hard to control what it may be. It could be the NHS crisis, it could be public spending, it could be any Slow number economy. of things. It could, be, it could be the economic crash and all the rest of it. And you take something like the NHS, where Nuttall has been on the record saying that he basically wants to prioritise it. Uh, I'm sure he would phrase it slightly differently, but Labour's out there getting that message across. And we just don't know how that will play out. But Marcus, if I remember the last 2015 general election, Labour focused almost entirely on the NHS and saying that the Tories are going to have, you've got 48 hours save the NHS, 24 hours save the NHS, and the NHS is still here and Labour is almost not. So it's a good question to see how effective that's going to be. And the Labour love of the NHS is so great that they'll forgive Castro political terrorism for the sake of having run a strong health service in Cuba. I mean, the NHS's obsession for Labour cannot possibly be described, let alone in a podcast with polite language. Now, that said, we have to understand that that whatever the issues are come the next election, I happen to think that Brexit will be the prevalent issue, UKIP is better placed to exploit those issues than the Labour Party is led by Jeremy Corbyn. And just as the NHS did not work for the Labour Party in 2015, it will not work for the Labour Party in 2020. And just as UKIP cost Labour crucial marginal seats up and down the country, and the reason why the Labour Party failed to advance in England in serious terms was more to do with UKIP than than the Conservative vote bleed, so it will be even worse come 2020 if these patterns continue. And that is why, despite the valiant effort of Labour MPs like Dan Jarvis saying the party needs to get real on immigration, get real on Brexit, 
the Labour Party continues to run off this cliff by backing unlimited, unfettered free movement of labour, by saying that immigration is the ditch that we're going to die on as a party, and by making the mistake that thinking that somehow 231 constituencies that voted Remain is a, in the referendum earlier this year is a base from which to operate politically. And yet 231 is not a majority in 650 seats. But I, th- I think to go back to your point about the NHS, let's not forget that the Conservative Party had promised to ring-fence the NHS, and therefore perhaps it's unsurprising that Labour didn't make much headway against the Tories on the issue. But bear in mind that UKIP didn't take a single seat off Labour, and that whole issue of... What do UKIP really think about the NHS? Are they economically credible? Back in 2015, they had a whole load of policy policies that just didn't stack up at all, and massive black holes in their policies. They are still not a very professional operation, and that will be remembered by people in a few years' time. But I think the thing to look at with Labour, and I do agree with Marcus that Jeremy Corbyn's basic promise to let in effectively anyone into the country is uh, either incredibly brave or naive or foolish or all three. And it is a very dangerous position they find themselves in. The way to think about Labour is it's a coalition. All parties are coalitions, but the Labour coalition is very visible at the moment. It's a coalition between people in big houses, fairly affluent, left-leaning, prosperous, particularly in London, and people in former manufacturing heartlands up north. That's the simple way to look at it. And when it came to issues of public spending and tax and spend, those people were fairly unified in that they believed in a fairer system. When it comes to social issues, there is a huge divide. And the increase in immigration from Eastern Europe in the last 10 years has massively exposed that. And therefore, Corbyn and John McDonnell have this difficult position in, which is, do we lean towards affluent London supporters and go all out to stay in the EU, even though that's impossible? Or do we kind of embrace Brexit and embrace a crackdown on immigration? And they kind of lose either way. And I think that's why they found themselves on the fence. That's absolutely right. And the great sophologist at election data, Ian Warren, just conducted some really fascinating focus groups that show, and he simply asked the question of leave voters, how long do you think the Brexit process should take? How long should it take to sort out immigration, agree the trade deals, and take back control of the legal and political systems? And after some discussion, uh, the groups came to the agreement that it should take three months. That if by spring of next year this whole Brexit thing isn't sorted out, never mind starting Article 50, sorting out the whole of Brexit, they will start to get very angry. Now ask yourself, if they are getting very angry, which way are they going to turn? Are they going to turn to the Labour Party or are they going to turn to UKIP? I think this is very true. I'm convinced that the word of 2017 is going to be betrayal in Britain and elsewhere. And that Absolutely. As, as soon as the compromises begin, as Theresa May tries to negotiate a soft landing out of the EU, UKIP will be the first out of the block to say exactly what those focus groups said, Marcus, that this is a betrayal. They're trying to frustrate the process, stall the process. The British people just want it. And again, just again, using the the, the question time audience last night, they were just saying, why aren't we getting on with this? Why are we waiting for the process? And I suppose it's this disconnect between the simple jargon of populist politics, Jim, and the actual complexities of real life. And I suppose that's the problem with the referendum campaign. Everything was done through such black and white simplistic terms. It takes no account for what's actually doable. And that's the real challenge for all political parties. Absolutely. And on on the immigration front, I think a lot of people who voted for Brexit would like to see immigration slow down. A lot of them would like to see immigration cease altogether. 
plenty of them would probably like immigration to go into reverse, which is clearly not going to happen. And I think if you imagine that it takes two years for us to enact Article 50, and then we have a sort of transitional period where there could potentially still be free movement of people, you're looking at a situation where you get quite close to 2020 and the immigration figures will regularly come out still with huge numbers of people coming into Britain, leaving aside the fact that we won't have any fresh restraints on people from outside the EU unless the government decides to do that as well. And you're setting yourself up for a massive betrayal narrative in terms of immigration. But I think not everyone in Britain is obsessed with immigration. It's not necessarily their biggest concern. And I think some people down south, it's quite easy to fall into the trap of thinking that up north is somehow this kind of wasteland which is not economically successful and people are miserable and they hate immigrants. And there's an element of that in a very few small places. Let's not get carried away with that stereotype. Now, I've just got funny two quick polling questions for you here, Marcus. Number one, is Jim right? You know, where is immigration on people's concerns and how's that changed? Because my brain is telling me that it's increased quite rapidly up the issues people are concerned about in a, the last couple of years. And two, just on UKIP's polling, you know, despite the farcical events they've had of having a leader for 18 days, having two of their MEPs who punched each other, their membership is in rapid decline, the party's got no money left, and you've got Faraz corralling around the world with Donald Trump with mixed feedback here, it still manages to get 13% of the vote in polls. I don't think they punched each other. I think there oh, must have been some kind of punch and someone fell over or something. But anyway, over a to punch up, a punch up. From punches to polling, it's pretty clear that immigration is the top issue, not for all voters, as Jim rightly notes, but particularly for this crucial group of voters that the Labour Party depends on. Let's not forget that the Labour Party's electoral coalition is half middle class, half working class. Hampstead to Humberside. Absolutely. And it is eating into that. And you don't need to look very far afield and you don't need to look very far back in time to see what happens when a great party of the left loses its working class base. Hillary Clinton lost the presidency because of white working class defections in Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. She would be president but for 80,000 of their votes in those places. That is despite Donald Trump, and this comes to your second point, Seb, that is despite Donald Trump having run, quite frankly, was a quite a crazed campaign at times. Mm. And that's because characters like UKIP and Trump, these populists, are able to transcend the normal rules that Westminster and Washington scorekeepers say and appeal direct to voters emotionally in the places that matter most in terms of deciding elections. And that's what we're seeing happening here in Britain. And there was some very good research this week by Matthew Goodwin, who's an academic who's very strong in this area. And he was looking at the 20 seats where there's more than 50% vote for out and UKIP was in second place behind Labour. And these were described as the most vulnerable seats in 2020. Now, I looked at them and they ranged from a majority of 4,000 to about 14,000. I thought, wow, this isn't really marginal. Surely it's not marginal. But let's not forget the idea of safe safe seats. seats. (laughs) You look at Labour in Scotland and you look at some of those seats. Gordon Brown's old seat had a majority of 23,000 and it switched to an SNP majority, I think, of 10,000. And then we see Zach in Richmond Park And it's yet another reminder, no safe seats. Well, we certainly live in interesting times. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.